Welcome back to Brailcast Extra. Coming up this time, choosing and setting up your embosser. A session recorded on Tuesday the 18th of January 2022, presented by me and introduced by Ben Mustill-Rose. Good evening and a very warm welcome to the first masterclass of 2022 brought to you by the Brailleists. This evening's masterclass is all about Braille embossers. What are Braille embossers? Why might you want to buy one? Why might you not want to buy one? And when you have bought one, what do you do with it to get it working? Uh, many, many questions, but I'm proud, uh, incredibly happy to say that we have someone here who will be giving us all of the answers, plus much, much more, I am sure. A name that will be familiar to many people who are uh, familiar with Brailist events. It gives me great pleasure to introduce to you all Matthew Horsepool. Matthew, take it away. Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening, Ben. Thank you very much for that introduction. And it's wonderful to be back with you all to deliver this masterclass. This is one of those that I've been thinking about doing for a long time and thinking, well, it could get very technical very quickly. And so uh, I've been putting it off and putting it off, but uh, putting it off no longer. So hopefully I'll be able to deliver it in a way which is not too technical and which people will understand. There will be opportunities for questions during this session. There'll be opportunities for questions at, at certainly two points, possibly a few more, depending on um, <clears throat> how I think it's all going. Um, in the first part of the session, we're going to talk about choosing an embosser. We're going to talk about what an embosser is and, and why you might want one. The different types of embosser on the market the different types of paper that embossers can take, connectivity options, the user interface, and a very brief digression to talk about the role of translation software. And at that point, there will definitely be a break for questions. Then we'll move on to setting up your embosser, and we'll talk about drivers and other bits of auxiliary software that you might have. The transport lock, which is one of those bits that people don't really think about, but is actually very important setting paper sizes and margins, some troubleshooting tips. And if we have time at the very end, I'll talk about some UK sources of help purchasing a Braille embosser. We may not get to that. There will be a handout available and that will contain all the information that we don't quite get around to, but I'm hoping to cover most, if not all of that. So what is a Braille embosser? Well, um, well, what is an embosser? An embosser is essentially a printer but it's a printer for Braille. It's uh, instead of using ink or toner to produce print, it electronically punches dots into paper. So there are two established uses for an embosser, actually. The first one is to emboss Braille, and that's why we're calling them Braille embossers. The second is a less established use, but is still nonetheless fairly established, and that's to emboss tactile graphics. And I'll talk more about tactile graphics in just a moment. There are a few groups of people who might benefit from having access to an embosser. And I say having access to an embosser rather than having an embosser uh, for a reason. Embossers are quite expensive. Uh, you're talking, well, two and a half thousand pounds plus if you want to own an embosser. If you want access to an embosser but you don't want to own one, your local resource centre for the blind probably has one. Uh, you know, you might have a, a, a church centre or somewhere that has an embosser, a library maybe, and it's worth investigating some of those sources if you only want to use an embosser occasionally. But the groups of people who would really benefit from having an embosser 
Um, individual blind people, if you're doing frequent uh, Braille work as part of your work, as part of your studies, or as part of a hobby. So if you're just embossing Christmas cards, well, you wouldn't emboss Christmas cards. That's kind of the point. If you're just brailing Christmas cards or the odd letter here and there, a braille embosser is probably overkill. But for example, I sing in the choir at Coventry Cathedral. That means I need to have hymns, anthems, canticles, uh, responses, psalms, a whole host of things in braille much of which I have electronically, and it's much easier to just, you know, put it through the embosser. So I'm using my embosser at home on probably a weekly basis, if not, you know, two or three times a week. So if you have a, a situation like that, an embosser will be very useful to you indeed. If you are a sighted friend or colleague or relative of a blind person and you don't know Braille, but you need to produce Braille for them on anything approaching a, you know, a frequent basis, an embosser is a good investment. So that might be a work colleague that needs to produce, you know, Braille copies of minutes and things like that. Or, you know, if it's a hobby and you need to produce Braille copies of instruction sheets or rotors, you know, anything like that, an embosser is very useful because you don't actually need knowledge of Braille to use one. Oh, knowledge of Braille is very advantageous but it's not strictly necessary. Teachers, parents, support assistants of blind children, or in fact anybody who's in school or college or university who has a visual impairment and reads Braille, an embosser is going to be useful in that context. And it goes without saying that professional Braille transcribers and producers rely on embossers nowadays in order to do their jobs. Gone are the days of zinc plate machines or you know writing things out by hand on a Perkins and thermoforming them. Virtually everything now is done via Braille embossers, certainly in the UK. I think National Braille Press in the US might still have some zinc plate machines, but I think they're one of the few that I know of anyway now that still use the old zinc plate technology. So I've talked a lot about Braille. I'll continue to talk a lot about Braille. I just want to sidestep and talk about graphics because graphics are one of these things that people sort of ask about from time to time and there really isn't a huge amount of knowledge out there and this masterclass isn't really going to cover them maybe we'll do an advanced masterclass on how to do graphics on your embosser at some point but the thing about graphics on a on an embosser they're not continuous they're, they're dotty graphics if you like and what happens is that the spacing between the braille dots is made entirely uniform so let's try and explain that a bit more. If you have a if you have a braille cell, the space between dots one and four of that braille cell is tighter than the space between dot four of that cell and dot one of the next cell in braille. And likewise, the space between dots two and three of a braille cell is tighter than the space between dot three of one braille cell and dot one on the next line. When you're embosser is in graphics mode this is not the case and the space is entirely uniform so for example you could write a letter r by writing the letter r you know on by, as dots one two three and five but if you were to write instead dots four five six followed by dot two because the spacing is uniform it would still look like a letter r it would just be a letter r that's been moved a little bit but it would be moved into imperceptibly it would still look like a letter r Similarly, if I was to write a lower H on one line and then drop to the next line and write a letter A, if the embosser is in graphics mode, then you'll find that that would also look like a letter R. So hopefully that's explained what I mean when I talk about uniform spacing. 
I don't think there are many Braille embossers now that can't do graphics. And in fact, there aren't many graphics embossers that can't do Braille. It does, however, help, I think, to understand that some embossers were built for Braille and graphics were an add-on. And some embossers were built for graphics and Braille is an add-on. The, the Braille dots that we like in our Braille, certainly the Braille dots that I like in my Braille, are very proud, quite bulbous is perhaps the wrong word but relatively speaking they're quite large dots if you you know if you imagine a slate and stylus and you imagine the head of the stylus it's quite a big head actually compared to say the head of a safety pin and if you tried to use a safety pin to make braille dots you'd find that the dots are very watery and this is the problem isn't it if you have a, a braille dot it's quite a big dot and therefore you can only reduce the dot spacing so far before you start to get into the territory of tearing the paper. And so the fine graphic data is very hard to reproduce with Braille dots. Coarse graphic data is pretty easy. You know, you can do circles and you can do graphs and stuff, but really intricate stuff is really difficult. If you make the dots small enough that intricate graphics become possible, and you can definitely do this, you know, some embossers have amazing tactile graphics heads you run the risk of the braille dots then feeling very spiky and watery and not very easy to read. And they, they tire your fingers out, or at least they tire my fingers out. So I'm thinking, for example, about um, View Plus embossers. These are the, the most common manufacturers of graphics embossers that I can think of and things like RE Braille Track and Braille Sheet. You know, wonderful embossers for tactile graphics. They are absolutely amazing. Um, I haven't used a View Plus embosser in several years. The last time I used one, I was very disappointed by the Braille quality because of what I was saying about the Braille head. Also, the View Plus embossers are quite expensive because of the precision required to get the graphics to come out properly. Index embossers, on the other hand, they produce acceptable Braille graphics. You know, they're, they're not bad. Um, anybody doing our Braille for Beginners course, the resources for those were produced on an index embosser and using the graphics mode on the index embosser to do the graphics of the braille cell. So, you know, it does a, it does a, a decent job, but its real standout is its braille. The braille dots are brilliant. So I've talked about index. I've talked about enabling. What does all of this mean? Well, broadly speaking, actually, there are two types of braille embosser, and this is now braille embossers. We're not, we've left graphics alone now. There are the domestic embossers, and they cost up to about 5000 pounds um that as i say the most common are the index ones and enabling technologies also manufacture domestic embossers they also manufacture commercial ones as well but domestic you know the, the romeo and the juliet are the domestic range of enabling embossers thiel if anybody ever used a porter thiel or anything else by thiel they would have also been domestic embossers they're typically designed to sit on a tabletop. They can emboss relatively quickly, actually, um, up to 120 characters per second or 360 pages per hour, although it's probably closer to 100 in reality, you know, or, or 300 pages per hour or something like that. They're quite noisy on the whole, but you can buy insulating cabinets for an additional cost to, uh, to, to get rid of that noise. And they generally only contain one print head so if the print head is broken that embosser is not going to work until you replace the print head commercial embossers well i mean you could pay ten thousand for one you could pay 
20,000, you could probably pay 50, 60, 70,000 for, for one if you wanted. Um, as I say, index the, the index Braille box and the index Fanfold D technically fall into that category, but really what I'm talking about are things like Braillos and uh, NV Interpoint, if anyone's come across those. They're embossing at rates closer to 900 pages per hour. Certainly 600 is is the pretty average for a Braillo. Um they're generally big self-contained units which have built-in insulation and uh, and built-in things you know they might have built-in paper cutters or they might have built-in binders or staplers um, and they might also have some redundancy in the form of multiple print heads and if one of the print heads goes wrong they might be able to operate at a slightly slower speed uh, but still keep going while that print head is removed and and sorted out Embossers can generally take one or in some very rare cases, two types of paper. Cut sheet paper is the probably easiest to understand. It's literally just the sort of paper that you would buy in a shop, you know. I mean, it's a bit thicker and possibly a bit larger, but it's just cut sheets of paper. Few commercial embossers take it. Um, the, the index braille box takes it. I doubt many other commercial embossers take it, but it's fairly common in the domestic market. Um, you know, index Everest would take uh, cut sheet paper. Some of the view plus stuff would take cut sheet paper. The braille sheet, you know, the ivory braille sheet is cut sheet. Um, it's relatively reliable, right? I mean, they've managed to build sheet feeders in printers that are very reliable now. So it's not unreliable. It's fine. You probably want to pay a little bit of attention to make sure that you've only got one sheet coming through at a time. The embosser hasn't actually grabbed two sheets and is trying to emboss on on that, um, you know, and, and that they carry on pulling through and they don't jam up. But the likelihood of a jam nowadays is is pretty low. The big risk with cut sheet paper is that you run out of paper. The sheet feeder can generally only take about 50 sheets at a time. So if you're embossing a book, there's a good chance that you'll have to change the paper halfway through the embossing. So that's not always ideal. The next step up from cut sheet paper is tractor-fed paper. And this refers to the paper with holes down the side. You know this type that you used to get in school, um, or at least I certainly used to get it in school, it literally has holes every half inch down the left and the right side and they might be removable or they might not and it comes in this great big stack of you know 500 or a thousand sheets or something and you know it all comes through in a great big roll and well not quite a roll but a great big stack and then at the end of it you have to sit there and tear all the sheets apart i had great fun doing this when i was at school and i also had great fun tearing the sprocket holes off um but that is tractor fed paper it's um used in domestic and commercial embossers the index basic will take it the uh, enabling uh, romeo 60 romeo pro 120 sorry juliet pro 120 the romeo pro you know the, the juliet pro 60 all of those will will take tractor fed paper the advantage of it over cut sheet paper is that because it comes in stacks of a thousand and because it's basically operating on a conveyor belt there's very little that can go wrong um, if paper jams with cut sheet paper are rare, paper jams with tractor-fed paper are even rarer. So you you know you can generally put a thousand sheets in there and get it to emboss a book and go off and have your lunch. And when you come back, the book's done. There's there's no problem. The the downside, of course, is that you have to tear the paper up afterwards. 
some commercial embossers, and I do mean commercial embossers, a domestic embosser would never take this, but some commercial embossers will take a great big tree trunk of paper, literally. I mean, it's it's an enormous roll, probably about half a meter tall, of literally continuous, unperforated paper. You know, like an enormous till roll or something like that. I mean, it's it, it is just, unless you've seen one, it's really hard to put it into perspective. But they generally divide into several thousand sheets and they're cut within the embosser itself. There'll be a blade in the embosser that cuts those sheets down. The key advantage of this is that the size of the sheet can be determined by the embosser. So if you want to emboss a really narrow book, you can do it on commercial embossers. And also, that you know, I mean, several thousand. I mean, you could put a roll of paper in an embosser at the start of the day. And, you know, even if you're embossing volume upon volume upon volume of books, you could get through the whole day without needing to replace the roll. So things like reading services, RNIB reading services, will be embossing on continuous rolls of paper. But as I say, you don't see it really in the domestic market because the rolls would be bigger than the embosser, quite honestly. They really are just absolutely enormous. There are one or two other considerations if you're thinking about an embosser. Um, just to summarize what we've talked about so far, if you're looking at buying an embosser, do you want to buy a tactile graphics machine or do you want to buy a braille machine? Do you want to buy one that takes tractor-fed paper or do you want to take one buy one that takes cut sheet paper? Those are your two considerations so far. The other things you need to think about are do you want to emboss double-sided? Most embossers nowadays actually will emboss double-sided. It's more trouble than it's worth to make a single-sided version of an embosser nowadays. And you can always tell a double-sided embosser not to emboss double-sided and to emboss single-sided, but you can't tell a single-sided embosser to emboss double-sided. But you do need to know that, you know, some embossers are. The Romeo is still a single-sided embosser. You aren't going to get double-sided out of that machine. Um, so, yeah, do be careful about that. You need to think a little bit about connectivity. Um, most modern embossers have got a USB port on them. I think many, I wouldn't say most, but maybe most, have an Ethernet port so you can connect it to a network. Some will have connectivity like an RS-232 port or a parallel port. Some will go completely the other way and they'll have modern connectivity like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth so you can emboss from your smartphone and how fun that can be. And, uh, you know, some, you know, I'm thinking about Index version 5 and the new, you know, Romeo and Juliet 60 and 120. You know, they have Wi-Fi, they have Bluetooth. You can even plug a USB memory stick into a USB client port on the back and use the menu system to emboss files from from pen drives and stuff like that. It's really very sophisticated. Uh, so you need to think about that. If you want to be embossing from a mobile phone, you need an embosser that can connect to your mobile phone via Bluetooth or Wi-Fi or, or so on. You know, um, If you're not bothered about that, you don't need it. And if you're buying a secondhand embosser, think about what connectivity it's got because it's useful to know that information, but also recognize that if the connectivity options are not quite what you want, you might be able to retrofit it. So there's a lot of basic V2s on the second-hand market still, which don't have USB ports, but uh, George Bell at Technovision Systems will be able to sell you a device which can convert its parallel port into a USB port or convert your computer's USB port into a parallel port. One way or the other, you'll be able to get that machine working. And Typically, the lifespan of an embosser is probably about 15, 20 years, if not more. So 
it, it's definitely worth you know doing that if the if the version two embosser is otherwise still in good nick. The user interface of the embosser is quite important. Um, at some point, you're going to need to change settings. You're going to need to set the size of paper and all that sort of thing. We'll talk a bit more about that later. But um, many embossers will have menus for this purpose. And some of those menus will talk. Some of them you might need to plug an external speaker in in order to get them to talk. But, you know, they will talk. Or they won't be menu driven at all. They'll have like a, a keypad and you have to enter codes. I'm thinking about, you know, the Romeo Attaché Pro and the old Juliet Pro 60s and things like that. They would have a number pad on the side. And if you typed in the right numerical sequence, you would get the right result. And all of that was perfectly accessible. Some of the commercial embossers don't have this. They just have a screen and you just scroll through the menu on the screen and, and they don't talk and they're not accessible at all. So um, it's not a huge deal. But, you know, it's worth knowing that the user interface of these embossers is something that's worth talking about. And, and how intuitive is it? You know, the user interface of an Index V3 is very different to the user interface of an Index V4. And probably the V4 and the V5 are easier to understand than the V3. But the V3 is slightly more configurable. So it depends what you're looking for there, really. The final thing I want to cover before I break for questions is the role of the translation software because people think, well, I bought an embosser, so now I can start to emboss. And that's sort of true, but sort of not true. The, the, the thing about this is that documents are typically written in print, right? Uh, or at least print-related things. So they're written letter for letter and they have print fonts and print styles and print colors and all of this sort of thing in them. You know, a Word document is designed to be printed, not to be brailled. So before that document can be embossed, there's some conversion that needs to be done to get it into a braille-ready format, uh, braille-ready format or BRF. And indeed, we did a whole masterclass on BRF files uh, earlier on in, well, I was going to say earlier on this year, but I don't mean that. I'm thinking in academic years, it was 2021. It's on the media page anyway. Um, and we talked a lot more about this concept. But, you know, there are things that we need to think about in a Braille file, like what Braille code are we going to have it in? Are we going to have it in UEB or SEB? Are we going to have it in grade one or grade two? What's going to happen if there's some text in red? How are we going to represent that in Braille? What happens about tables and lists and other stylistic things like headings? Um, what about Braille page numbers? Should they be at the top left or the top right? And what are we going to do with print page numbers? What are we going to do if we haven't included print page numbers, but there is a print contents page? You know, presumably we need to update that contents page so it has Braille page numbers, or possibly even if there's no contents page at all, maybe we ought to add one. Um, you know, what are we going to do about graphics? Are we going to bother embossing them or drawing them? Or are we going to describe them? Or are we going to miss them out completely? So until recently, embossers weren't capable of undertaking any of this stuff. So the entire process would need to be undertaken by something like Duxbury or Braille Blaster or Braille 2000 or Easy Converter or uh, in the dim and distant past, you'd have used something like um, BrailleMaker, WinBraille, NFB Trans, Cypher, any of those programs. And you'd have had to use that because the embosser just wasn't capable of doing any translation. More recent embossers sort of have made an attempt at sorting this out. Um, 
again, I'm talking a lot about index embossers in this session because they're the ones that I know the most, but they have index direct braille built into them. If you send a Word document through index direct braille, you'll get reasonable braille coding. The formatting might be a bit suspect, but you know, I mean, if you're just looking to braille something for your own personal use and you don't care about the formatting, you'll, you know, you'll, 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 you'll get something that's useful as long as the word document is styled up in the first place and look if you really wanted to cut corners you could open a word document and you could make the changes that you want to make in the word document and then then emboss it but look it's not great i mean it works you can go into the braille app if you've got a network connection and you can log into its web interface you can go in and you can edit it and it it it, it sort of works but really for the best results and especially if you're doing anything approaching professional level transcription, if you're transcribing documents for other people, you really do need some translation software. Duxbury is still far and away the most popular um, and it will add probably, I can't remember the price off the top of my head, but it will add about £600 on to the, if you're buying an embosser new, that's the sort of thing you need to be thinking about. There are free ones, I say Braille Blaster is free and is getting better and better all the time, but Duxbury is still by far the most popular. So I've been talking for about 25 minutes. Uh, I'm going to stop at this point and take a few questions and then I'll talk about setting the embosser up. Thank you, Matthew. Great stuff so far. Lots to take in. Already have a few people with their hands up. So we're going to come to Derry first. And after Derry, we're going to come to Tina. Uh, Derry, you are good Thank to you. go. Great uh, talk on the brain bus. I used to have, I still have an index, uh, basic B, I think it is. Um, glad I could probably hook it up using the parallel with George. You're saying George Bell does the... Uh, connection so you can connect it up but is there a brailer out there a desktop unit that's not so loud as the index to be honest i wouldn't think so i've got a basic d v5 so actually the way this worked was the d stood for double-sided and the s stood for single-sided um so i have a basic d version 5 and quite honestly, I had a basic D version 2 when I was at school and the, the outer shell of the version 5 looks very similar to the outer shell of the version 2. The, the, the embossing sound has hardly changed. I mean, it's changed a little bit because it's got different motors in and stuff. But no, it's, it's not much quieter, really. You, I, I don't think there's anything on the market unless... Look, I mean, there are things that are sort of embossers that are not embossers, really, but can function as one. So I'm thinking about something like the Cosmo, which first and foremost is an electronic brailer, but you can hook it up and use it as an embosser. And the same goes for the Mountbatten. And if you used something like that, it might be quieter. It also probably will be slower and it will only take one sheet at a time. So you'll be constantly sat there and feeding new paper through it. But if, if quietness was your primary consideration, that might be something to think about. Okay, listen, thank you very much. Great. No problem. Thank you, Derry. We're going to come to Tina next. And after Tina, we're going to come to Jeff. Uh, Tina, you are unmuted. Yeah, good evening, um, everybody. Um, I have a um, Braille embosser. Um, it's a BM Brailler. E EM Brailler embosser. It's, um, and it's single-sided, but I'm thinking of actually getting one that does double-sided paper. And also, as you say, the tracking one's good because you haven't got to worry about 
keep feeding it with paper all the time. I wondered what you'd recommend. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I would always recommend an Index Basic D in the UK. I just think they're brilliant machines. Um, you know, even the newer ones are the the Braille quality is fantastic. There are there are other. Uh, issues with them you know that the firmware can be a bit unreliable from time to time but i mean once it's working once it's set up and running the braille quality is fantastic and i would always recommend an index yeah basic d or everest d um or something along those lines um what you really want to do if you want to do a bit more investigating than that is you want to write to the manufacturers and say can i get a sample you know if you if you asked view plus they'd probably send you and view plus is i think who makes the embraille that you've got they'd be able to send you a sample of the braille uh, in the post of what their embossers can do and if you can get to a site village or something and look at them for yourself that's always a good option but yeah something index wise in the uk is where i'd go yeah it's actually got it's um has tiger software yeah, that's View Plus. Hope that helped, Tina. Um, and uh, definitely uh, get back in touch if you have any more questions. Let us know how you get on. We're going to come to Jeff next. And after Jeff, we're going to come to Koal. Uh, oh, mute. Oh. Uh, there, there you are. Right, right on cue, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Matthew, um, thank you for your excellent talk. As expected, of course, it was your usual high standard. But putting that aside, and I don't necessarily expect you to answer this today, but to give me guidance, um, I have an Index Basic DV3. Um, I would like to produce some reasonable Braille, in other words, good enough for me. Um, I'm trying to do it via Wi-Fi, but I think I've tried Braille Blaster and the lowest index it went down to is v4 i know i could pay 500 pounds for duck spring probably sort it i don't really want to pay that much so any any hints and tips be welcome otherwise i'm happy to make a donation to the brailist foundation for anyone who sorts it <laughs> well what an offer there's an offer we can't refuse um i think you're right this is one of those questions that is very technical and probably we need to sort it off list and probably i need to call upon george for some assistance here but um what i would say is that there is very little difference in terms of the protocol between the version 3 and the version 4 so if you set up braille blaster and tell it that it's using an index version 4 and in fact it's using a version 3 i don't think the version 3 will care it will just it will just get on and do what it's supposed to do it didn't seem to like it but that could have been me well or it could have been something other than braille blaster there it could have been a connectivity problem or something but protocol wise there's very little difference i i could cable it if i had to uh, I, I won't bore you about the research I've done. I'm fairly sure I've got the right cable, but ideally I'd like to Wi-Fi. Well, it might be worth cabling it as an experiment to see if Braille Blaster will drive it, and then uh, then at least we know what the problem is. Yep, excellent. Thank you. No problem, Jeff. And thank you once again, Matthew. We're going to come to Kowal next. And after Kowal, we are going to come to, uh, you've heard his name a few times so far, we're going to come to George Bell, who I'm sure will have uh, a lot to say on this subject. Uh, Kowal, uh, you are unmuted. Oh, hello. Um, I just wanted to say thanks for doing this because um, I started doing a new job soon and I had to get an embosser. I used to have a V index V5. And somebody said to me that if you press help five times, somebody would come and fix that embosser without you knowing. Is that true? I don't know 
what the exact sequence is and I don't know exactly how it works because I've never tried it. I do know that one of the features of the version 5s and possibly the version 4s, but definitely the version 5s, was a remote support feature. As I say, I've never tried it. I don't know how it works. It would almost certainly require an internet connection either via Wi-Fi or Ethernet. But yes, there is a remote support feature. Whether it's help five times or not, I don't know. And, and how reliable it is, I don't know. Great, thank you. You learn something new every day there. Or, of course, in the case of this masterclass, multiple things new in uh, not even a day, but just one hour. Uh, thank you, Kyle. And uh, thank you, Matthew. You're going to come to George now. And after George, we're going to come to Ellie. Uh, George, you have the floor. Take it away. Hi there. Um... Right, I've got a bit of a list here. Uh, first of all, the enabling printers we're talking about, this has caused a great deal of confusion because enabling uh, had a Romeo and a Juliet embosser, uh, which were completely different from what is now the Romeo and Juliet embossers, which in fact are indexes with a humanware badge and called Romeo and Juliet, one is single and one is double-sided. So don't get it confused into that situation. Uh, you mentioned Duxbury at around 600, it's actually 520. Uh, the Cosmo, yes, if you want a quiet embosser, but for you know occasional uh, use, in other words, you're not going to be printing 50, 100-page books, then the Cosmo is great for two or three pages at a time, and you can have it blasting full time while you're on the phone with the Cosmo right in front of you. And it also can, that can work as an electronic version, similar to a, a Perkins. You talk about writing to the um, manufacturers for samples of the Braille. Well, why not write to your local UK dealer and you'll have it in the post the next, you know, probably the next day. Um, V4 and V5 indexes actually have quite a significantly different interface to the uh, versions two and three. Uh, but if you are only again after, you know, pure Braille, uh, the versions three, two and three are quite a few secondhand ones in the market. Uh, we have a few and they're around about £500. Uh, the question of the STPs, that's the serial to, sorry, um, yeah, uh, parallel to USB, I should say. Um, is less than £15 these days. In fact, in Amazon, you can get them for under £10. And that will convert your parallel output only to such a way that you can connect it into a USB port on a Windows 11 machine even. Um, check into warranties is uh, uh, a good idea because um, Index certainly have a two-year warranty back to base on theirs. Make sure that whoever you're buying from uh, has good repair facilities. Uh, we do employ a full-time engineer for, uh, for repairs um, because some companies will take weeks to return it. Uh, others will take two or three days. Um, I think, broadly speaking, that covers most of what I've uh, heard so far, so I'd better get off and 
give Ellie a chance to get a question in. <laughs> well, I'm very grateful to you. If you're still unmuted, George, just one um, thing to to come back on slightly. You were talking about the interfaces being very different. Um, yes, I would actually agree with you. The buttons, in terms of the actual physical interface are very different there's, there's a big row of buttons on the version 2 and version 3 and there's a menu system in in 4 and 5 so i would actually agree with you when i was talking about the interface i was more talking about protocols and the escape sequences used to set paper information and stuff are largely the same and, and graphics so in terms of as far as a translation tool is concerned i don't think it really cares whether it's a version 3 or a version 4 really I think something else I'd like to to point out as well is that the uh, with good software, I mentioned no names, but with good software, you are in charge of the control of the printer. As we say, the you know the dog is wagging its own tail, not the tail wagging the dog. So uh, one of our biggest support issues is you'll get a techie come on or somebody who's not so familiar come on and say, well, I've adjusted the margins on the printer and I've changed the page length and so on and so forth. You shouldn't have to do anything to touch the printer. It should be controlled from the software. And if you don't know how to do that, either ring us or ring whoever supplied you with it and, you know, get the instructions. Yeah, I'll come on to that a bit more uh, later on, but it's a good point and well raised. Um, so yeah, thank you. Thank you, George, as always. Uh, last hand for now, last but by no means least, we have Ellie. Ellie, you are now unmuted. Um, hi, I haven't been in this meeting for very long, but I have a question about our embosser. We have a V5 and for some reason, when you put multiple sheets of paper in, it will just suck them all up and just use them all instead of using one do you know how to stop it from doing that i vaguely know how to stop it so it's a that would be an everest version five because it i guess you're taking individual you know cut sheets of paper on the sheet feeder there will be and i'm, I'm trying to desperately think of it because i haven't used an everest for a while on the sheet feeder there will be some adjustment they look a little bit like switches unless they've changed dramatically on the version fives um there'll be some adjustment switches and they should have if you move them up and down they might change the um the pressure that the roller is putting on and therefore it should roll fewer sheets in if you move those adjusters about a bit and there are also the uh, what are they? The little plastic bits that guide the paper. Make sure those are set properly. Um, but yes, this is sort of touching on what I said earlier on about cut sheet paper. Once it's working, it's very reliable, but you do need to check because until it's working, it can be quite unreliable. And I think um, it might be worth a conversation off this call if it's still not working. Uh, I hope that helped Ellie, I see George has his hand up. After George, we'll move on to the rest of the session. Okay. Yes, that is a uh, quite a common uh, problem. Uh, there are sliders on the front of the uh, guides on either side. And depending on what paper you're using, they would need to be either moved up or moved down, but you certainly shouldn't be getting a whole bunch of paper coming through at once. So call your supplier 
and uh, ask, you know, get some guidance with them on the phone until you can get the bringing one sheet through at a time. If that's us, fine, give us a call. Yeah, because I'm getting like, it's about six sheets it's sucking in at a time. No, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have that. Two Thanks. sheets, apparently. Yeah, even so, it, it's, it is a support problem. It's a common problem. And with the right settings, you'll be able to fix it. It'll just take some trial and error to get it fixed in the first place. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you, George. We're going to squeeze Dawn in quickly as well, Matthew. Uh, Dawn, you are good to go. Okay. Um, we have the index V5. And when we're trying to emboss the margins on the side, they, um, they're off. Yes. Um, so is, is this a basic or an Everest, you know? It's a basic. Yes, okay, and it's a V5. Okay, and what software are you using to emboss from? Uh, Duxbury. So if you go into, well, so you should do it in global, really. If you go into global and then embosser settings uh, and you change the left margin, there'll be it, it, it'll be set to zero. But if you set it to something like two or three, that should fix the problem you might subsequently, if you've already made some documents, you might subsequently have to go into the document menu and change it for the documents that you've already made up. Um, but that should solve the problem. If it doesn't solve the problem, um, I think Duxbury's not set up quite right. Okay. Do you know if there's a way to set it up for Braille 2000? Um, I don't know Braille 2000 well enough to give you a proper answer. But there are settings on the version 5 embossers themselves. If you go into the menu of the embosser, um, you can set it up there. And again, set the left margin, or it might not be called that, it might be called binding margin. Set it to 2 or 3. And if Braille 2000 doesn't send any data before it embosses, which I don't think it does, then that should also solve the problem. Hope that helps, Dawn. Sorry to chivvy you on a little bit there, but definitely keep in touch if you run into any more issues. Uh, no more hands for now, Matthew, so back over to you. That's wonderful. Thank you. Um, <laughs> for the first time in doing a masterclass, I'm really seriously running out of time, so I'm going to skim through quite a lot of things and refer you to the handout and hope that that's okay with everybody. Um, the first thing to comment on is drivers. You will need them. And that's basically all I'm going to say. Embossers are not plug and play. You're going to need some drivers. If you're installing drivers and they come up with security issues because they're not signed, don't worry. They're not actually a security hazard. It's just that they haven't signed the drivers. So you can go ahead and say, yes, install them, even though they're not signed. The manufacturer might make other software available. So, for example, Index Direct Braille for indexes and the Tiger software suite for the ViewPlus embossers. You can install it if you want. It won't do any harm. It might actually help you. But the embosser itself, if you're using it with Duxbury, doesn't need that extra software. At least it doesn't in most cases, unless the driver's built into that software. It just needs the driver. And Duxbury or Braille 2000 or what have you will handle the rest. Inside most Braille embossers, there is a transport lock. This has to do with the fact that in order for the embosser to emboss, the head is going to be moving from left to right across the page. And if you don't lock the head in place when the emboss is being transported and you, you, know, the, you, you shock the embosser from left to right, you're going to find that the head is constantly moving and that's going to put wear on the motors and it's going to put wear on the cable and it's potentially going to cause a lot of problems. There will be a locking bar 
either in your embosser well i mean if you bought it new or, or secondhand and it was packed properly there'll be a locking bar that you'll have to take out before you can use the embosser and there should be some clips on the back of it to store it somewhere um please do store it and please for goodness sake do put it back when you transport the embosser for repair and make sure you put it back properly there, there's there'll be a hole in the outer shell of the embosser and there'll be a hole in the print head and the bar needs to go through both of those holes in order basically for the print head to get caught on the locking bar. And if it's not put in properly, it won't do its job. There'll be a setting on the embosser to put the transport lock in in most cases. And it's a good idea to follow that setting and that'll be detailed in your manual. We've talked already quite extensively actually about paper sizes and margins and stuff. And um, so I'm not going to wax lyrical about it in the way that I was going to. But just to say there are actually three considerations which I've kind of touched on already. There's the physical length and width of the paper. So that's measured in inches or millimetres. So A4 paper actually physically measures 297 millimetres by 210 millimetres. Or a, you know, a 12 by 12 sheet measures 12 inches long by 12 inches wide. Then there is what I'm terming the logical length and width of the sheet. So, for example, uh, is it 40 characters per line and 25 lines per page? Or is it 42 characters per line and 29 lines per page? And then there are the top and bottom and the left and right margins. So, yes, it's a 40 character per line thing. But if your left margin is set to zero, that's going to put 40 characters over to the left. You know, you, you might need to move the left margin write a bit effectively you know add some characters to the left margin in order to bring that in and the same for the top margin and the, the bottom margin as well um you need to know that if you've set the left margin you shouldn't normally need to set the right margin so for example let's say um your embosser reckons that you can get 46 characters on a line and you've said well i only want to get 40 and you want it centralized so you set the left margin to three you could set the right margin to three if there is a right margin at all, but you shouldn't need to because if your translation software is only sending 40 characters, those last three characters on the line are never going to be a problem anyway because they'll never be received. So you should be fine in terms of margins to only set the left and the top. And in some cases, if you're working with BRF files in particular, it can be an advantage to deliberately not set the right margin and the bottom margin in case somebody's got their line lengths and their page lengths wrong and, and the embosser needs to overspill a little bit. When you're embossing double-sided, sometimes when we talk about the left margin, um, we're talking about the left margin as it appears on the uh, sheet and not as it appears on the page. What I mean by that is, for example, um, it's double-sided, right? So the, the front side, the left margin will be on the left. To read the back side, you have to turn the page over and therefore the left margin at that point should be on the right and therefore it's more accurately called a binding margin. You might want to, if, if you've got odd margins, if you've got a left margin of two and a right margin of one, you might want to run a test page off just to check that that is the case. And if it's not the case, you might need to think again about what your margins are set as. But just to note about that. And the other thing to note uh, that I will particularly bring up here is the idea that page widths, particularly if you're dealing with tractor-fed embossers, page widths usually don't include the tractor holes. So, for example, you buy 12 by 12 paper 
because the page, you know, it, because it's 12 inches, but those 12 inches include the tractor holes. So the embosser would see that as 12 by 11 paper, because once the tractor, fa- the tractor holes are taken off, you'd be looking at 11 inches across. Um, as I've already sort of said, Duxbury has some quite clever programming that allows it to control paper settings on the embosser. Many other translation softwares don't have this. So, I mean, if you're using Duxbury, you should be fine. If you're not using Duxbury, you probably should set the paper settings on the embosser just to be sure. In the handout, there is information about some edge cases. So, for example, if you're using Duxbury most of the time, but occasionally using other translation software that needs slightly different settings, you might need to be a bit careful of the work that Duxbury is doing. But these are edge cases and they're covered quite well in the handout. I also talk in the handout about top of form, which is sort of related to paper settings, but it isn't. It's a mechanical setting to do with the distance between the the perceived top of the page on the embosser and the start of text. So you shouldn't really need to worry about that when you're dealing with paper settings. You just sort of need to know um, that it's there. And the other things that I've covered in the handout are some troubleshooting information. You know, if your embosser just isn't embossing, what are you supposed to do about it? And if you're thinking you might want an embosser, but you can't afford one, like I say, I mean, I think the Cosmo might be slightly cheaper. The Cosmo might be about 1500, but realistically you're looking at two to two and a half thousand for a new embosser. You could buy a second hand embosser, but if you're specifically looking to buy a new embosser and you don't think you've got the money for it, if you're, for example, in work, you might be able to get one through access to work. Or if you are a young person, you might be able to get it through, say, Victor or Look. And uh, there are other grants available, and some of those are listed in the handout as well. I realise that is uh, quite rushed, but it is already five minutes till the end of the session. So I will stop in case there are any final questions. Thank you once again, Matthew. Uh, As you say, a few minutes for questions. So we're going to come to George first, and then we're going to come to Mel. Uh, George, you're good to go. Yeah, it's just a quick one. The later index is on both the Everest and the uh, basics. Uh, Do have a fixed left tractor or guide. So where it's difficult to explain, but in some cases when you're aligning paper up and somebody says, well, it's going over the left-hand side, uh, left-hand margin, you actually would be able to move the left-hand tractor. Uh, and move both the left and the right-hand tractor to move the paper. Now, that works up as far as the version 3s, but be aware that the version 4s and 5s, the left is fixed. Therefore, you have to do it via software if you want to add a binding margin. Yeah, that's another good point. Well made. Thanks very much, George. No problem. Thank you, George. Uh, Mel, you are now unmuted. Thank you. It's only a quick question and not very technical, so probably easy to answer. I take it there's different kind of grades of Braille paper, for the, like the tractor paper. Do you get thicker and thinner and, you know, for more permanent Braille, stuff like that? I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, <laughs> we could do a whole masterclass. Well, actually, we couldn't at the moment because the information isn't really available. I could do a whole Brailcast of investigative journalism about what makes good Braille paper. And 
there definitely is a difference between good braille paper and not good braille paper. Um, we make the mistake in the UK, certainly, of talking about braille paper by weight. And so we talk about, you know, 135 GSM. And in fact, I don't think I can find any braille paper now that's tractor fed that isn't 135 GSM. It's all kind of about the same, um, which is about the right thickness. I mean, it's it's fine. And it's the only comparator that we can really talk about because nobody tells us any of the other specifications of their paper. But yes, I mean, I think the best thing I can suggest is get some samples of paper from the likes of Technovision and RNIB and Sight and Sound and Dolphin and compare them and you will feel the difference between the paper. And from an embosser's point of view, what you want is a paper that doesn't generate very much dust. And it's amazing, actually, some of the Braille paper on the market, and I better not say too much because I can be accused of being unprofessional, but some of the Braille paper on the market really does generate an enormous amount of dust. It's absolutely awful. Um, so again, I mean, my, my favorite paper by a mile is Technovision paper. Um, but it's not really about thickness. It's about coating and it's about dust levels and, and what the grain is it short grain or long grain paper and all of that sort of thing. A massive thank you to Matthew Horsepool, as always, for such an in-depth and incredibly well-presented masterclass. On behalf of the entire Brailis Foundation, thank you once again, Matthew. Thank you once again to our incredible audience. I'm Ben Mustel-Rose. Take care, stay safe, and bye for now. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Brailcast Extra. You can find more Braille-related content by subscribing to Braillecast, all one word, in your podcast client of choice, or listening to Braillecast, connecting the dots for Braillists everywhere on your smart speaker. For the latest information about future Braillist events and how to join live, subscribe to our weekly email newsletter at braillists.org slash newsletter slash sign up. You can also visit our events page at braillists.org slash events. If you have comments on this recording or suggestions of topics or guests for future events, we'd love to hear from you. Please email help at braylists.org. You can also find the Braylists on Twitter at Braylists or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Foundation. Finally, if you like what you've heard, spread the word. We welcome new listeners and live participants alike, so if you know other people who are interested in Braille, please tell them where to find us. In the meantime, on behalf of everyone at the Braillists, thanks for listening and bye for now. The costs of producing this episode were defrayed by a grant from the Activate Fund of the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust. For more information, visit wcmt.org.uk.